I'm going to begin by saying two words which probably sound rude to you, and if they don't, there's something wrong with you. Get lost. Get lost. Get lost. Now, if I said those words to you, get lost, you probably would, um, you'd understand that I want you to be gone. I don't want you around. Get lost. But think for yourself, can you ever think of a time when you might say to someone, get lost, and it's actually a good thing to do? Say, for example, someone from Manhattan. Someone from New York City who's a know-it-all, they know everything about everything. They're very, very, very arrogant, and they decide to move to Sheridan, Wyoming. And they come into your business, and you, let's say you're in the um, mining business, or ranching business, or oil business, and all they know how to do is um, move numbers around on a computer. And they come into your office and they start telling you, let me tell you how to run this company. And after a while, you don't know what to do with this person because they're an arrogant. They act like they know everything. And in fact, they don't know anything. You might say to them, um, get lost. But what if such a person came into your office your place of business, and they were arrogant, they were a know-it-all, they were from Manhattan, and they talked as if they knew everything, but you actually loved them. You actually thought, you know, I can help this person. And so you say to them, welcome to Sheridan. We're going to help you get lost. That might be a little different. What we're going to look at today is probably one of the best known of all the passages in the Bible. It's one of the most loved passages in all of the Bible, and it's one of the most misunderstood passages in all the Bible. And it's a passage in which Jesus effectively says, get lost. But he does so because he loves somebody. Our passage of scripture is the parable of the Good Samaritan. I'm sure all of you have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan. You probably know it very well. If you look at movies uh, that talk about the life of Jesus, you'll see Jesus, he's sitting on a, on a stump somewhere, and he's got this whole group of children around him, and he's telling them this nice story of the Good Samaritan. If you go to Sunday school class, I hope not here at this church, but I'm afraid it would be at this church. Any other church you went to anywhere in the world, and you went to a Sunday school class, and today's lesson is on the parable of the Good Samaritan, all of them would teach the same thing. This is what they teach. Children, be nice to everybody, because everybody is your neighbor. That's true. That's nice. That's not what the parable is about. If right now we were at a seminary and we went to the seminary library and we took out the books on the shelves that have to do with the Gospel of Luke. In fact, I did this last week at Denver Seminary. I pulled out five books on the, book on, on the parable of the Good Samaritan and every one of them, with one exception, said the same thing. This is a parable taught by Jesus 
to tell people to be kind to everyone because everyone is your neighbor. I'm here today to tell you that I think they're completely wrong. And I think I can prove it to you. A well-known Bible teacher, his name is uh, D.A. Carson, he made this statement. He actually quotes his father or grandfather. A text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. In other words, if you take any passage of the Bible outside of its context, it is no longer the words of the Bible. Those are now your words. You're trying to tell somebody what you want them to know, not what the Bible teaches them. If you want to know what the Bible says, you have to look at it in its context. I submit to you that the parable of the Good Samaritan is regularly stripped out of its context. And so, let's look at it. It's found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 and following. You know the story. Here's a man going from, Je from Jerusalem to Jericho, about a 17-mile trip. He falls among robbers who strip him of all his clothes and beat him up, and he's unconscious on the road. Along comes a Levite and a priest. They walk by. Along comes a Samaritan. The Samaritan shows him kindness, and of course, everything ends happily ever after. That's how the story goes. But now let's look at the context. Here's where it begins. You have to first ask yourself the question with the parable of the Good Samaritan, who is Jesus talking to? The first thing I would submit to you is he's not talking to a group of children, as nice as that is. He's not telling a morality tale, as wonderful as that is. You can't miss the context. Here it is. The text of Scripture says, on one occasion, an expert in the law now, when you see the words an expert in the law, you're not talking about a lawyer. Today, an expert in the law is a lawyer or an attorney. I have a daughter who's an attorney. That's not what we're talking about. An expert in the law in Jesus' day is an expert in the Mosaic law. So an expert in the law in his day is a theologian, but not just a theologian, a, probably a professor of theology. This is an expert. This is someone who knows the law of Moses well and teaches it to others. He stood. Now when you stand, you take an authoritative stance, and he decided he's going to test Jesus. Now, after all, this is a very, very well-educated person. Jesus was not formally educated, highly. Here's a man who's probably very um, well-off, and Jesus is a peasant. Here's a person who probably frequents the halls of learning and Jesus wanders about with a bunch of ragtag fishermen. So he believes that he can stand before Jesus and set him straight. So he asks him a question. Hey, teacher. What does it take for me to go to heaven or have eternal life? Now, if you look at the man's question, he, he does two things in that question. The first thing is, does he tells about his religion? He's Jewish. The second thing he tells about his philosophy, it's got a contradiction in it. First of all, his religion. Teacher, what must I 
do. I've studied world religions. I've, in fact, taught at community college philosophy of religion. I've studied the 12 classic religions, and all of them basically are variations of the theme, what must you do to either achieve enlightenment or make yourself acceptable to God? What must you do? If you're Muslim, you come up with the five pillars of Islam. If you're Buddhist, you have the eightfold path. If you're Jewish, you have the 613 commandments. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see, for them, God has a scale. And you put your good deeds on one side, and hopefully your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, and then you get eternal life. What must you do? to become saved. But do you see the contradiction? How do you get an inheritance? What must you do to get an inheritance? Be born. You, you don't earn an inheritance. You can't. An inheritance is a gift. So when he says, what must I do to get an inheritance, just in that alone, there's a deep contradiction. You don't get an inheritance by what you do. You get an inheritance by who you are. And there's somebody that gives you that gift. But Jesus doesn't quibble. Jesus says to the man, um, instead of answering this question, Jesus could have said, well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. He could have said that, or he could have said, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. He could have said that, but Jesus didn't. Jesus said, um, I'm a peasant, and you're a theology professor. Why don't you tell me the answer? Well, he can't wait, because he knows the answer. He was just trying to test Jesus. He knows the answer. And then he gives the answer. And here is his answer. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the answer. Now that's the common Jewish answer. The Jewish people believed, and Jesus agreed. The Jewish people believed that, and this is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, that what God wants is you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. And then from Leviticus 19, the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. It was the typical Jewish way of summarizing all the law. And Jesus agreed with it. Jesus said, Great answer. Why did you do that? If you do, you will live. What's the problem? What's the problem with his answer? Okay, what if I said to you? You come to me and you said, Tom, how do I inherit eternal life? And I say to you, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time, 
and always love everybody as your love, you love yourself. Do that, and you shall be saved. What's the problem? Can't do it. You can't do it. You can't do that for one hour, much less one lifetime. You can't do that. You can't do that ever. No one can do that. No one has... Your whole heart, that means you've never had a thought in your mind that's not godly. Every single thing you should do in the tone of voice with which you should do it for God's glory at every single second of every single day, that is God's command. Do it, turkey. <laughs> do this, and you will live. And I would say to you, you want eternal life? Great. This is Jesus' words now. This is Jesus, this isn't Tom. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Go for it. Do it. It's the end of my sermon. Go be perfect. Go. <laughs> now, any person, any person on earth who's alive with their own heart would immediately say, I can't, I can't do that. I've never done that. Jesus, it's impossible. And yet all their life, for by the time of, of Jesus, Moses' law had been in existence for 1,500 years. For 1,500 years they've been mouthing this. And no one has had the, well, maybe some people have said, wait, wait a minute. That's ridiculous. We can't do this. But now the key to the parable is the next verse. Here comes the next verse. But he wanted to justify himself. Now, that's the problem. Don't you see what the problem is? Here he is, standing toe to toe. He doesn't know this. He's standing toe to toe with God and God has just said, this is the way you can stand in my presence. You have to love me with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, all the time, and your neighbor as yourself with never one mistake, and you can stand before me. And the guy tries to do it. He says, yeah, I can do that. Is that not what he says? And so he stands before God himself and says, Hey, who's my neighbor? Now, what would you do if you were Jesus? You could do, say, Get lost and just walk away. That's what I probably would have done. I would say, You are so blind, I'm not wasting my time on you. Get lost could do that. But remember, this is what the Bible says, and this applies to Jesus. God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Jesus loves this guy. And so Jesus is not going to say, get lost! He's going to say, I'm going to get you lost. Because you see, this man's problem is he thinks 
He's saved. And he's not. A few years ago with a friend, we went through the entire gospel, all the gospels. We took every single event in the gospels and we took every single interaction of Jesus with anybody and put them into two columns. One column was every time Jesus tried to seek and to save lost people. And in the second time, in the second column, we put all of the occasions where Jesus tried to get found people lost. You know what the numbers were? One-fourth he's trying to seek and save lost people. Three-fourths he's trying to get found people lost. You see, the major ministry of Jesus was not getting lost people found. The major ministry of Jesus was getting found people lost so that they could be found by God. That's his major ministry. Check it out for yourself. Because remember, who's he dealing with? He's dealing with Jewish people. The Jewish people believe they're God's chosen people. They're God's covenant people. If they've been circumcised, if they do some following of the law and go to synagogue, they're going to heaven. And Jesus had to show them that that's not true. Now, with a person like this, is this what you would do? Here you've got a PhD in theology who's very arrogant, thinks he can stand before God and declare his own righteousness. And this is what you do to him. You pat him on the head real softly and you go, be nice. Why don't you be nice? Because everyone's your neighbor. Be nice. Is that what you do with this man? But that's what we do, we heard in Sunday school. That's what the commentaries say. That's what the movies say. Be nice. No. We have turned our Lord Jesus Christ into Mr. Rogers. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful day in the neighborhood. Won't you be mine? Won't you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? Now, there's nothing wrong with being a nice neighbor. We all should be nice neighbors. But to turn Jesus into Mr. Rogers, to turn the powerful God in human flesh into telling us a little moral tale about being nice to everybody is demeaning to our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not what he's doing. Jesus now is going to tell this man a story He's going to put the man into the story so that the man hopefully will see himself. He will see his sin. He will see God. And he will see other people differently. Jesus could have given him a lecture. He didn't. Jesus could have given him some more rules and regulations. He didn't. Jesus tells him a story. And here is the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Who's the man? The man is every man, every woman. And all of us in life go through life, and uh, we encounter difficult things. But this particular man was devoid of both of the signs in that society by which you knew who they were or what they were. 
You see, in that society, there were Jews, there were Gentiles, there were Samaritans, and each of those different groups had distinctive clothing and a distinct language. And so if you had your clothes on, you knew who the person was, and if they started to speak, you knew who they were. But this man has no clothes and he's unconscious, so he can neither speak nor can he be identified by his clothes. So we don't know who he is. Well, what happens? The Bible says a priest comes along. Now, a priest would probably have been a Sadducee. The priests were very high class, very well off. They had a very specific role. They were the ones who carried out the sacrifices in the temple. The priest came along on the road. He saw this man naked and unconscious. And for whatever reason, we're not told why, he went on his way. Then a Levite. Levites were not priests. The priests took care of the sacrifices. The Levites did the more mundane tasks like keeping the incense in the bowl and changing the bread, the showbread every week, or sweeping out the temple. It's a, sort of a lesser um, religious person. So now the Levite comes by and he sees the man on the road and he passes by on the other way. We're not told why. It's not important. Now, at this point, as, as this lawyer is listening to Jesus, I'm sure the lawyer can guess what point three is going to be. Point three is going to be, and along came a layman, a Jewish layman. And so the priest would have expected, I know, here's another rant about how we religious people are a bunch of hypocrites, but the normal people in the church aren't hypocrites. But that's not what Jesus does. Jesus says, and now a Samaritan. The Samaritans were the scum of the earth. The Jewish people called them dogs. They were half-breeds. They were partly Jewish, partly um, Assyrian, partly Canaanite, all mixed together. They had a false religion, and they were not known to be very moral people. In fact, in the Jewish synagogues, there was a weekly prayer that prayed that the Samaritans would go to hell. Can you believe that? Can you imagine? Here we are in Sheridan, Wyoming, and we're having our time of prayer. Kevin is praying for us and says, Oh, God, I pray earnestly that the, all those Coloradans would go to hell. <laughs> oh, thank you. By the way, in the first service, someone said amen real loudly. <laughs> they said, Oh, man. <laughs> I can't imagine that. Can you imagine praying that someone would go to hell? They prayed. We have records of this. They prayed that they would go to hell. That's how much they hated each other. And what does Jesus do? He makes the guy the hero. And now he is going to score a perfect 10 in what he does. There are actually 10 things he does here. I'll read it. I don't know if you can pick out the 10. He's going to do precisely what God would have done. As he traveled, he came to where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, bandaged his wound, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Wow. But now what is the lawyer doing? The lawyer is fuming. 
You've gone too far, Jesus. I mean, if you had said it's some lay person, I might have been able to take it, but not a Samaritan. So then Jesus wraps it all up with these words. Um, lawyer? Who's the neighbor? And now the lawyer cannot bring himself to say, eh, it was a Samaritan. Can't say that. He said, no. Um, you know, it was that, the guy that showed him mercy. He said, okay. You go be that man. What's Jesus doing? What is Jesus up to? What's his approach? What's he trying to do? Well, what's, what's obvious is Jesus wants this precious man's heart. He wants this man's heart to love the Lord his God. And so Jesus is now going to become a surgeon. By his story, he's making some incisions. The first incision to do heart surgery is through the skin right here. The first incision is Jesus puts the, the lawyer into the story because he is the Levite and the priest. And anyone who is a human being, who is alive and has any sense of self-awareness, knows that on any particular day, we pass by opportunities all the time we have to do what God wants us to do. How many times has the Holy Spirit prompted you to do something or to reach out to somebody or say something and you didn't do it? first thing Jesus wants this lawyer to see is what he really is like and how many times in life he omits. Remember, this is not a sin of commission. This is a sin of omission. And I would submit to you that the worst sins and the multitude of our sins are not the wrong things we do. It's the right things we should do that we don't do. And here now Jesus tries to point out his sin. But then the second uh, instrument Jesus gets out is a little sharper knife, and this one's got some uh, uh, heat or with it. I'm not a doctor or a surgeon. Maybe someone is who's here. And you cut through some of the muscles now. And now Jesus, through the Samaritan, is going to show this man what the standards of God really are like. And by the way, do you know what the standards of God are? Here's God's standard. Remember I quoted Jesus to you before. Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's God's standard. You see, all the, the world religions, that's why I understand world religions and they, 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 they make me horribly angry because what world religions do is they tend to take the standards of God, God's holiness, and they lower it, lower it, lower it, lower it until religious people can convince ourselves that we're holy in God's sight, but the rest of people are not. And then we live in that illusion. Do you notice what Jesus does with every command of God? Check every passage of Jesus. He always takes the commands of God and he heightens them. You think you're a loving, you think you're a person who, who's very good about giving? Here's God's standard. Give everything you have to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Oh, you think you're a real nice person who's never committed murder? Here's God's standard. Have you ever once in your life said a bad word to anyone? Have you ever been angry with your brother? You're a murderer. Oh, I keep my, my mind pure. Oh, you do. You've never committed adultery, but Jesus said, if you've ever had a lustful thought, you've already committed adultery in your heart. 
Pray five times a day facing Mecca. What does the Bible say? No, the Bible says pray without ceasing. Never stop. Forgive. How many times, Jesus? Well, seven times? No, Peter, not seven. Seventy times seven. Every time Jesus raises the standards. Why? Because if God's holy, our God is holy, our God is perfect, heaven is perfect, God's standard is perfect, there's no one who can possibly get into heaven who is not righteous, 100%. There's no possibility. We would ruin heaven. So the, the problem is, how is God going to take people like ourselves and make us holy? God is not in the business of making bad people good or good people better. He's in the business of making dead people alive. He's in the business of making people like us holy and righteous in his sight. And now Jesus the surgeon gets out the chainsaw cuts through the sternum. Because the most severe cut he's going to make to get to the heart of this man is he's now going to use somebody who they hate, the Samaritans, and show them to be the hero. By the way, this parable is not told like a parable. Most of Jesus' parables begin with the following words, and Jesus told them this parable. It doesn't say that here. It's possible this was a true story. And here Jesus says, and I would say to you, there are groups of people here in Sheridan, Wyoming, I can promise you, who do not share our morality, who do not share our theology, who do not go to church on Sunday or ever, who are full of mercy and compassion, maybe more than we have. Now that hurts. But Jesus is hurting this man, not to hurt him, but to get to his heart. Because the point of the parable is, Jesus is trying to get a man who's convinced he's found, lost, so that he can be found by God. And that's the business that God is in with all of us. You see, Christianity is not morality. Yes, we are to live moral lives, but Christianity is primarily not about good people. Christianity is primarily about Jesus giving us his righteousness. A verse that I trust, Lord willing, as I'm here almost all the time you will hear is, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin to become sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. You see, the beauty of Christianity, the genius of Christianity, the uniqueness of Christianity is we do not make ourselves righteous. We can't. We have the privilege of receiving the righteousness that Jesus accomplished for us when he took all of our sin on the cross. We have the privilege of being people we're lost and know we're lost so that we can be found by him. I conclude with a story of 
myself being lost and then found. In 1975, I was 22 years of age. I grew up in a rural area, way smaller than Sheridan. This is like a major metropolis for me. And uh, I, I just finished college, and on the lark, I was offered an opportunity by the Ministry of Education of Swaziland, Africa, to come as a teacher. And so I sent a telegram. I decided very quickly I would do this, and on, on a Saturday, I sent a telegram to Swaziland, Africa. If you know what a telegram is, by the way, it's like a, an email, let's call it that. Um, I sent an email that I was going to come, and this was my flight. I was going to fly on Sunday, and I would arrive Tuesday morning, which I did. On Sunday morning, I got an airplane in Chicago, and I flew to New York, and I got an airplane from New York and flew to Liberia. I got an airplane from Liberia and flew to Ghana. I got an airplane from Ghana and flew to Zaire. I got an airplane from Zaire and flew to South Africa, and I got into an airplane and flew from South Africa to Swaziland. And I got there on Tuesday morning, right on time. It was beautiful. When I arrived in Swaziland, uh, the airport was the size of the lobby out here, way smaller than the worship center, just the size of the lobby. At that time, in 1975, the air traffic in, in, in the country of, of Swaziland was one airplane a day. One day, an airplane came into the country, and one, the next day, one airplane left. And I was on the one coming in. So I got off the plane and was ready with my two suitcases and ready for someone to pick me up, and no one came. And the other people had people that picked them up and took them somewhere, and no one came for me. No. <laughs> there was no email, no cell phones. Yeah, we did have phone. There was one of these. You know, you <laughs> I had never used one. I'd seen them on TV, but I'd never used one, but I didn't know how to use it, and so I just sat there for hours. By the way, I'd left Chicago in the middle of the winter, and it was in Africa in the middle of the summer now. I sat on my suitcases, and I'm out in the middle of nowhere, dirt roads, and I was scared to death. I'd never, I, I was a rural kid, and now I'm in another continent. No one's here to pick me up, and I'm crying out to God. You know, I, oh, please. I don't know what to do. Finally, I saw a car come. I said, oh, thank you. It was a black car, really nice one. And it pulled up to me, and a man rolled down the window and said he was French. He was a French person with the French embassy in Swaziland. He, he couldn't speak English, I couldn't speak French. He said, can I help you? I said, yes, someone from Franson Christian High School was supposed to be picking me up, but no one's come yet. He said, I know a Christian. I said, good, could you take me to him? If you, could you take me to a Christian? I would just love to meet a Christian, because I'm, I'm desperate here. He got me in his car, and he took me to a, a, a nearby town, and he knew a Christian missionary there. That missionary put me in a truck the next morning. On the back of a, of a pickup truck, I went through these uh, dirt roads. I finally arrived at the school, and I had beat my telegram in the country by two days. <laughs> it hadn't arrived. <laughs> I was lost. But getting lost is good. It's profoundly humbling to, 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 be, to be lost, but that's good to be humbled. Getting lost is scary. 
But sometimes, if we're not scared, we don't take the, the, the steps in life that we're supposed to take. Getting lost it forces you to ask for help, and when you ask for help, you find God is near. Getting lost makes you incredibly grateful for a map or someone to help you. Great and getting lost and then found makes you incredibly grateful. God is in the business of getting lost people found because he wants us to clothe ourselves in the righteousness of Jesus. So it's the kindest way I could ever say it. Get lost. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the privilege of being lost. In fact, so incredibly lost that we know that we know that we know that we need Jesus. And I pray that you'd fill this church with people we know that we know that we know that we need Jesus. And we walk and live and behave and clothe ourselves in his righteousness alone. This we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please stand and let me conclude with um, a benediction. This is taken from the words of Jesus' brother. His half-brother's name is Jude. Now unto him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to allow you to stand before God's glorious presence faultless with great joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, honor, dominion, and power. Both